I know that your bulletins say that we'll be reading from John chapter 4 this, this, morning, this evening. I felt that as I was continuing to write and develop the ideas within this article that Hebrews chapter 7 would be more appropriate. So if you would turn there instead, we'll be reading from Hebrews 7. That's found on page 1004 of the Pew Bibles before you. Hebrews chapter 7 will, be, will begin in verse 11. Beginning in verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, for which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, You are a priest forever." This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the othermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later, then the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you'll turn now in your bulletin, we'll recite Article 22 of the Confession, the Belgic Confession, together. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what do we confess? We believe that for us to acquire the true knowledge of this great mystery, the Holy Spirit kindles in our hearts a true faith that embraces Jesus Christ with all his merits and makes him its own and no longer looks for anything apart from him. For it must necessarily follow that either all that is required for our salvation is not in Christ, or if all is in him, then he who has Christ by faith 
has his salvation entirely. Therefore, to say that Christ is not enough, but that something else is needed as well, is a enormous blasphemy against God. For it then would follow that Jesus Christ is only half a Savior. And therefore we justly say with Paul that we are justified by faith alone or by faith apart from works. However, we do not mean, properly speaking, that it is faith itself that justifies us. For faith is only the instrument by which we embrace Christ, our righteousness. But Jesus Christ is our righteousness, crediting to us all his merits and all the holy works he has done for us and in our place. And faith is the instrument that keeps us in communion with him and with all his benefits. When those benefits are made ours, they are more than enough to absolve us of our sins. Will you pray with me? Father God, your word is indeed living and active, and even now you remind us of that reality, that it cuts to the bone, that it divides the portions of the heart, that it teaches us in the way that we should go, directs us, comforts us, and exhorts us in Christ Jesus. So we ask now that that word would cut our hearts, that it would lead us to Christ, and that it would encourage us in the faith. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see on the outline that the introductory remark, which I hope encompasses the main thrust of this article, is that everything we need for salvation is in Christ and only Christ, and we receive his benefits, that is righteousness, through the hand of faith. Everything we need for salvation is in Christ and only Christ, and we receive his benefits, that is his righteousness, through the hand of faith. So number one, the merit of Christ. Christ perfectly obeyed all of God's law, which means he was perfectly righteous. He was perfectly righteous. And there's something important to note about this. Letter A, Jesus is the only one whose obedience resulted in justification. Jesus is the only one whose obedience resulted in justification. And when we think about the obedience of Jesus in this regard, we're not just considering the obedience to the Ten Commandments, but we're also considering the obedience to the whole of the Mosaic Law and obedience to the whole of God's will for him as that new federal head, as that second Adam who would come and by his sacrificial death atone for the sin of mankind and pay for it and credit to them his own righteousness. It is all of this obedience that we, could, we consider. And it's important for us to do so because it, we set it in the context and contrast of our own obedience or enable inability, the insufficiency of our own obedience. Because you and I could never do this. You and I could never obey the way that Christ does, the Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments, or the will of God for him as this new federal head, as this second Adam. And of course, I think, for instance, on someone like the woman at the well, this woman who has five husbands, she could never obtain justification on her own. Even if she were to stop and say, on that day that Jesus approached her, from this day on I will live a perfectly righteous life, it would be infinitely short, it would fall infinitely short of the kind of righteousness, the kind of obedience that God requires of us. 
We know this, of course, because Scripture teaches us that even our best works are tainted by sin. We see this more clearly, once again, when we contrast with the obedience of Jesus. The obedience of Jesus was not just outward. It didn't just appear to be righteous. It was inward as well. It emanated from his whole being. Uh, His obedience was steeped in this. Every thought, motivation, feeling, inclination, direction, posture of the heart of Jesus, every direction that he moved in was without sin. And not only was it without sin, it was positively righteous. That is to say that it met the whole demands of God's law and that it was done to the glory of the Father. We see that very clearly all throughout his ministry in John. I came to do the will of the Father. I came to glorify the Father. I have glorified your name, he declares in John 17. The Old Testament makes this even more clear, the the necessity of righteousness and the inability that we have in multiple places, but we see it most principally in Israel. So letter B, the mere fact that Israel had to continually offer sacrifices assumes that they were not righteous and that they could not meet the standard of God's law. So you think about it. Okay, the woman at the well can't do it, but also Israel can't do it. They couldn't say after making a sin offering, you know what, from this moment on, I'm going to live righteously so that I never again have to make another offering for my sin. They couldn't do it. And the whole sacrificial system wasn't, we typically think about it just in terms of atonement. And it's true, we should think about it as foreshadowing the atonement of Christ. And even that is insufficient. As Hebrews declares, the blood of goats and bulls cannot atone for sin. But it's also meant to show their, their need for perfect obedience. And it's meant to expose their inability to keep the law. The shed blood of offerings point to atonement, yes. But the continual need for offerings points to the fact that they they weren't righteous and they couldn't meet the righteous requirement of God's law. In Leviticus 4, we read about the sin offering. The sin offering was for what my professor referred to as sins of shagagah, the Hebrew word, sins of inadvertence or sins that were an accident that you didn't mean to commit. And it contrasts these sins of inadvertence with the sins that you commit with a high hand, that is the sins that you do intentionally, that you've planned, that you've meditated upon. There it says, if any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of these things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and realizes his guilt or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring his offering, a goat, a female without blemish, blemish, for his sin which he has committed. So the whole sin offering, a major offering throughout the Old Testament sacrificial system, is only for sins that you unintentionally commit. And that really draws out the significance of the depth of our depravity, does it? doesn't it? Because there's quite a number of sins that they unintentionally committed that they continually needed to make sin offerings for. But what about sins that you commit with a high hand? Surely none of us would be so bold as to say that we've never done that. We've never plotted 
how we're going to steal a cookie from the cookie jar when mom walks out of the room, huh? I definitely did. Well, for a sin that you commit with a high hand, there's no provision in the sacrificial system. And this is why we see when David realizes his sin with Bathsheba, what he, does, what he doesn't do is go and make a sin offering for his failure because he committed that with a high hand. All he can do is fall on his knees and petition God's grace. So everything, the sins of inadvertence, along with the, the lack of provision within the sacrificial system for sins of a high hand, point to the need that Israel has for someone to come and obey the law perfectly if they're going to retain possession of God's land, if they're going to merit, uh, merit by their obedience blessing and fruitfulness in the land of Canaan, in the promised land. All of this pointing to the fact that they could not merit life. So let her see. Jesus' righteousness and subsequent justification means that he has the power of indestructible life, which he then pours out on the elect. He is the answer to that dilemma. Our wickedness, our best work is infinitely wicked. We've already mentioned it's still tainted in God's sight. But because God is infinitely good and infinitely righteous, our offense against him is of infinite value. It falls infinitely short of his standard and of his majesty. Now, if you contrast the righteousness of God the Father, our unrighteousness, and then you place beside it the righteousness of Christ, you have another thing that is infinitely removed from anything that we can comprehend. Jesus' obedience was infinitely perfect, infinitely righteous, in ways that we cannot even begin to comprehend because we cannot have a single thought that arises out of a perfectly pure, unsinful motive. The purity of Christ, the sufficiency and value of his obedience goes beyond what we can imagine. And it is this righteousness that Hebrews chapter 7 is really keying in on when it, as it qualifies this righteousness, as it indicates that this righteousness is what qualifies him to be this Melchizedekian priest. The author contemplates, he wasn't descended from Levi, he was descended from Judah. But Moses says nothing about a priest descending from the line of Judah. How is it that Jesus is a priest? Well, Melchizedek is the combination of two Hebrew words. Melech, king, tzaddik, righteousness. Melchizedek. So Jesus is this king of righteousness who, much like Melchizedek is presented to us, in the story of Genesis, is coming from nowhere and going to nowhere. He just bursts onto the scene. He's eternal. Jesus is presented in this tradition then because of the quality of his righteousness. He is eternal, and he operates as this priest eternally. He does not die like the Levites did because of sin. And it's for this reason, for his eternal righteousness and his kingly priesthood, that he now becomes the guarantor of a better covenant. He seals it. And the priestly office here in Hebrews chapter 7 isn't just about the atonement. I mean, you look at the chapter. Typically, right, we always refer to, almost exclusively, the priestly office with making atonement for sins. But Hebrews 7, Hebrews 7 seems to go beyond it. 
it's, it's revolving around, it's obsessed with this notion of righteousness. And it begins to close the chapter by referring to Jesus as holy, as innocent, as unstained, as separated from sinners. And it's this that makes him the eternal guarantor of a better covenant. He has now been made perfect forever. Now it's of course maybe complicated to think about righteousness and that priestly office, but Hebrews 7 clearly ties these two together as it discusses the indestructible life that Jesus has. And it's not just that he was abstractly, perfectly obedient. He was perfectly obedient as that new federal head, as that second Adam who was to be a representative for for the elect. So that means that that righteousness, that infinite righteousness is given freely to the people of God as pure gift. And the result of this then is that nothing can snatch you out of his hand. Nothing can harm that life. That, that life that springs up from the well of his own righteousness. Because it's, its source, its vitality, its vivaciousness comes from Christ himself. It's probably already implicit. But this indicates that number two, he is the sufficient savior. Everything that is necessary for our salvation is found in Christ alone. Letter A. The righteousness of Christ was actual and did merit life. That is, it was efficient. That is to say, nothing else is needed. All that is necessary for sinners to be saved is found in Christ alone and in his merit. Kids, do you know what merit means? No? It means to obey perfectly and thereby earn your reward. It would be like if your parents said, after you finish your homework, you can have ice cream. And you've done that perfectly, and now you merit that reward. Jesus has perfectly obeyed and merited the reward of eternal life by his righteousness. And it's all, everything of it is found in him. So to contradict this is actually blasphemy, as as the confession says, is actually blasphemy against Jesus, and not just Jesus, but God himself. It, It would make God out to be both unjust and unfaithful to his covenant promise. Unfaithful as in the the likes of Isaiah 43, 1, where it says, I alone am the Lord. I alone will rescue you. Unfaithful as in Genesis 3, 15. He will bruise the heel of the serpent. Or he will crush the heel of the serpent, rather. He, referring to Christ. So if salvation is not wrapped up entirely in Jesus Christ, then God is unfaithful to his promise that Christ would be the one to accomplish it. It would make him unjust also, as in Psalm 51. There it declares that God is justified in his words and blameless in his judgment. So if God were to render, if God the Father were to render the wrong verdict for Jesus Christ, if he were not to have justified him, if he were not to have raised him from the dead, then it would be the wrong verdict, and God would be unjust. Similarly, if Jesus wasn't perfectly righteous, 
and God were to justify and raise him, he would be unjust as well. He can't. For Jesus to be raised means that he was perfectly righteous. Those two things go together. So since Jesus is raised from the dead, since he is justified, it must mean that the proper verdict has been given, that he was indeed perfectly righteous, and that this righteousness of his was sufficient to merit for himself and for those whom he came as that second Adam to represent life. Letter B. We're not just making this up. But scripture teaches that you cannot be saved by your own works plus Christ. It is one or the other. And this, of course, is the issue that Paul was addressing in Galatians with the Judaizers. The Judaizers insisted that in order for Christians to be considered a part of the covenant, they needed to receive the signs of circumcision and uh, follow the, the Mosaic food laws. And to them, and they argued, by the way, that without doing these things, there is no salvation. So it's faith in Jesus Christ plus circumcision plus adherence to Mosaic food laws. And Paul responds to them. He fires back resoundingly for believing in both, Christ plus works. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. And the reason for this is that if you want life by works, then you must be completely perfect. And that's Leviticus 18.5. Keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. So if you want to throw works in there, if you want to put works in the mix, then you have to actually live by them and be justified by them. Justification in this sense means to be declared righteous. It's a stamp of approval. And this, this pursuit would be to throw in our works alongside Christ's righteousness is an insult to Christ. It's to infer that he is not enough. It's to infer that his obedience and his righteousness was insufficient and the resurrection is a categorical rejection of that notion. Since Jesus was raised, his works are sufficient. Letter C. Christ's perfect obedience therefore means that the entire work of salvation is complete in him. There is nothing else that we can add to it. Nothing at all. Either everything is in Christ or not everything is in Christ. And that is to say that nothing is in Christ. It's either or. And the reality is that it is nothing in addition to Christ. Nothing is added to his work that we contribute. No amount of faith, no amount of obedience, no amount of religiosity, nothing con contributes. And it's also the case that we... we, we cannot even begin to try to contribute to the stat status and the standard of his righteousness. It falls infinitely short. And that's actually, that's actually good news. It's good news that your obedience doesn't contribute to your, your justification. 
that your justification, your righteousness before God is held completely in Christ. It's good news your works don't count. You would never, ever have assurance if your righteousness before God was wrapped up together with your obedience. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we recognize how insufficient our obedience is. And this also means, and I think this is a particularly comforting point, this also means that our lack of faithfulness, our lack of obedience, cannot diminish, cannot undermine, cannot take away from the value, the worth, and the efficacy of Christ's saving work, of His righteous obedience, and the justification and resurrection that He received. My failure isn't a variable. Jesus' righteousness is. That's beautiful. We'll touch on that again in a moment for a brief comment, but number three, the instrument of faith. Faith receives as with an open hand the merit of Christ as the ground of salvation. Faith receives as with an open hand the merit of Christ as the ground of salvation. Now the confession states that faith, letter A, faith itself doesn't justify. It is Christ's Christ's merit received that justifies. That's such an important statement to make. Faith doesn't justify. Christ's merit received is what justifies. Here's what that statement protects you from. Turning your faith into a work. If faith itself justifies what becomes the basis of your salvation, faith. Your faith, your work, how much you believe and how that's evidenced in your life. So properly speaking, then the ground of justification is Christ's righteousness and that Christ's righteousness is what faith receives and Christ's righteousness is what warrants and serves as the basis for our own declaration of righteousness. Of course, the New Testament is not just making this up. When, Peter, when Paul says that we're justified by faith, he's actually quoting Habakkuk. And what Habakkuk shows us is letter B. A proud person relies on himself, but a righteous person relies on God. A proud person relies on himself, but a righteous person relies on God. There in chapter 2, verse 4, verse 2 to 4, he says this, Write the vision, make it plain on tables, so that he who, run, he who may run, he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to its end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. This is one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. Habakkuk comes to God and he's like, God, what is going on? I don't understand what you're doing. How can you raise up Babylon to oppress your people? How can you raise up Assyria to oppress your people? God responds, Habakkuk, you, don't, uh, you can't even begin to, do, to understand the work that I'm doing in your day. You wouldn't believe if told. But here's my prophecy. Don't lose hope. Look for it. Look for the fulfillment of the things that I've promised to you. Look for the fulfillment of your deliverance in me. 
The one who's puffed up doesn't do that. The one who's puffed up doesn't have an upright heart within him. Actually, in terms of thinking about justification by works, the one who thinks that he can do it himself is not upright. But the righteous shall live by his faith. In other words, he relies on God, his faith that God will deliver him from the oppression of the Babylonians and the Assyrians and foreign empires that rise up against God's people. Habakkuk inherently recognizes his powerlessness in his, this situation. He needs help. He rests and he relies on God to deliver. Righteousness comes from Christ. It is the sole ground of our justification. So let her see, this means that the primary ground of my assurance is Jesus himself. I always have a hard time understanding how people... How we, how, we, how we mistake this, how we get this wrong, it seems so clear and so plain from Hebrews 12. Even as it exhorts us to obedience, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Our, our gaze is fixed on Christ. Our hope is fixed on Christ. Awareness that you are indeed a child of the living God comes from looking at Christ and at His all-encompassing sufficiency. Faith in Him is what keeps you in communion with Him, not faith in your faith. I actually don't want to believe in my faith, in my obedience. Those aren't sufficient grounds to save, to justify, to make me righteous. And if that's what I'm looking at, I'm looking at the wrong thing. And in the ethos and the, the thought of the author of Hebrews 12, it actually, to look at my faith, to look at my obedience, is to rob myself of the spiritual power that I need to overcome sin and temptation. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. This is a huge problem, I think, in... in Broad evangelical theology is a problem for the Catholic Church as well. The emphasis continually falls on works and faithfulness that your faith must show you to be a Christian. Now, I'm not arguing against works. And I'm not arguing that your works never strengthen your assurance. What I am saying is that we're justified by faith. And if we're going to go into discussion of how works relates to that faith, works. That's what James 2 argues. Faith does what it does. It works. So my failure isn't a variable. Jesus' righteousness is. That's the sole ground. And the reality is that we will never have assurance if our litmus test for assurance and and conviction that you're, are, we're right with God is by hyper-analyzing our faith. With Christ, ask no more questions about faith, but go upon your, your, your way rejoicing as one to whom Christ is all. 
I want to close with this because I've, I've always found it to be the most comforting quote on this subject. And this author, Horatius Bonner, says it in words far better than my own. But I am not satisfied with my faith, you say. No, truly, nor are you ever likely to be so. At least I should hope not. If you wait for this before you take peace, you will wait till life is done. It would appear that you want to believe in your own faith in order to obtain rest for your soul. The Bible does not say being satisfied with your faith, we have peace with God, but being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And between these two things, there is a wonderful difference. Faith holds fast to Christ alone, whose righteousness is the sure ground of our right standing before God. That is our only hope. That is our only comfort in life and in death. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the act of obedience of Jesus Christ. That he freely grants and credits to us his righteousness that we might stand before you on that final day being perfectly conformed to his image and claim entrance into that new heavens and that new earth. We thank you for that righteousness which allows us even now to call on you as Father by the merits of Christ alone in whose name we pray. Amen.